WATD presents John Paul, the car doctor. All things automotive. Have questions? Call 781-837-4900. Now, here's John Paul, the car doctor. And good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Car Doctor Program on 95.9 WATD. And uh, it is it is Sunday morning, and like Jesse pointed out, the weather is wacky. It is just we, we have a variety of weird things going on. It, it's sunny, it's rainy, it's snowing, it's sleet. It's doing all kinds of crazy things. So, it, you know, you still need to make sure you maintain your car and do everything you need to do to make sure it is running the way it should and it's going to take care of you when you need to and we're not at the point of self-driving cars yet we just did a study at AAA that showed that self-driving cars a higher percentage than we had seen in the past of people don't want to be in self-driving cars they're afraid they're afraid of being in self-driving cars i think it's up to about 68 percent of the people and some of that's probably uh somewhat due to you know all the news you hear from you know some of the tesla's crashing and and other vehicles because self-driving technology really isn't there yet and the other little bit of news that uh uh, we put out this week had to do with uh some vehicle thefts we saw with uh, key fobs where people would keep uh key fobs either in their car which is kind of silly or they would keep them very close to the door of their house so the key fob would actually still actually work uh, even though it wasn't that close to the car. And in some cases it would work because uh, thieves would actually have these boosters that would boost the signal from the car to the key. So the car thought the key was really closer than it was. You can get in and you can start the car. In a lot of cases, the cars weren't stolen, but what they were was a um, people were ransacking the cars, going through them and looking for a variety of different things, you know, whatever valuables you keep in your own car. So always best to lock your car. And, of course, the other news uh, that sort of followed up with that was the whole Kia Hyundai thing where a lot of Kias were getting stolen, and they're getting stolen. And one story I just read said the cars were being hotwired with a USB cable. That's not even close to being true. It had nothing to do with the USB cable hot wiring the car. It had to do with they were using the plug to actually manipulate the lock. So it had you could you could be a screwdriver for that matter. Let's see, is Jesse back? I am here. Okay. We Jesse had to make an emergency run down the hall to and not what you think, by the way. Um but he had to make an emergency run down the hall to check on things. So uh everything's good down the hall? I actually never left. I just oh, you I, did. I wanted to be here with you and uh, oh, you did. experience you did. the how, of the show, but I will go how, check. How, how touching. How touching. Well, I thought about how you might want to bring your guest on right away, so I was like, I better uh. not leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, with us then is David Settle, and he is a history researcher and author, and he specializes in automotive history. David, good morning, and welcome to the Car Doctor Program. Good morning, John. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and and uh, some of the some of the things that you, you do. And how did you get how did you get into this? Well, I love old cars, and I started uh, researching and writing from 1891 forward. And there was a book uh, written by Beverly Ray Kimes and Aust- Henry Austin Clark Jr. called "The American Cars uh, Standard Catalog, 1805 to 1942." And it just excites you when you read that because uh, I was hoping that I could actually let you read it someday. It's a, it's like an encyclopedia, and it gives brief history, 
but some of the cows are so interesting, you have to research further. And there is no book written on all the automobiles except for the standard catalog, but it's very brief. And I decided 18 years ago, I drive back and forth to the airport for Drummond Transportation out of Duxbury, which is now TK Livery out of Weymouth, and I had a lot of sitting time. So I would bring books and I would read. And I decided to write a book of with 90 chapters, three volumes, a complete history of the American automobile from 1891 to 1948, ending with the Tucker automobile from Chicago that the uh, big three got together and they they basically paid the judge off to, to uh, find him guilty of mail fraud and put him out of business. Uh, it, most people know the Tucker car because they made a movie out of it. But going back, uh, the history of the automobile is fantastic. And what what I've done since is I'm researching the complete industrial revolution starting in 1793 at the uh, Samuel Slater Mill in Pawtucket, which is right near you, I guess, yep, and, yep. And, and then up to Lowell to Francis Cabot Lowell, uh, Boston Manufacturing in Waltham, and then the city of Lowell. And... Thomas Blanchard built the very first steam car in America, and he also invented the lathe. And Eli Whitney, that, that um, built the cotton gin, that wasn't his greatest invention. The greatest invention he he designed and invented was the milling machine. Hmm. And between the milling machine and the lathe, they, they went to the Springfield Arsenal, and it made uh, the rifles for the hmm. military. Yeah, no. It, and the most important thing about that was is that's where interchangeable parts came from. Before, whenever machines were made, each machine was made individually. So, and it all evolves right into the auto yeah. industry. Well, well, let's let's talk about the auto industry a little bit. You mentioned the first steam car. Yeah. Now, there, you know, and there are some people who think the absolutely first car ever made was a steam car, and that was a. Uh, um, made in made in Roxbury. I think it was made by uh, uh, Roper, right? You know, there's an argument on that, but Thomas Blanchard is uh, credited with the first steam car. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And and the first the first kind of car as we know it, kind of in, a, a internal uh, combustion yeah, engine yeah, powered. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and who's who built that one? It was actually. Siegfried Marcus mm -hmm. from Vienna, Austria. He built it in uh, the Benz and Daimler cars were built in 1887. But uh, Siegfried Marcus built his, and it was all wood, very little metal in it, with a uh, internal combustion engine. Uh, 1869, I believe it was. Mm. But he also built a car before that in 1859 that was run on steam. So the Nazis, uh, under Hitler, gave the orders for the German soldiers when they went into Austria to go to the technical museum that had the Siegfried Marcus car and destroy it. And the word got out that the German soldiers were going to destroy that because Siegfried Marcus was Jewish. And Hitler didn't want any Jews to have credit for inventing the first car. He wanted Carl Benz to. Now, Carl Benz spelt his name with a C, but that's not German. Mm. So Hitler even made him change his name to Carl with a K. 
But what happened is a museum in Austria found out that the German soldiers were on their way, so they, they took it down into the basement, and they built a cement block wall around it, and they hid it. Now, it lasted for quite a while. Uh, the, man, the men that built it were no longer with the museum by the end of the war. And it was in the 1990s that somebody went down and says, you know, I think there's something behind that wall. And they didn't know if there was anything or not. So they broke down the wall and they found the Siegfried Marcus car. Now it's on display at the Technical Museum in Austria. Hmm. Yeah. And and back in back in the early part of the last century, uh, there was there was a lot of car makers that were um, almost kind of one offs. You could you could build a frame and build a body, and you were suddenly a car manufacturer, right? You're absolutely right. A lot of people don't realize there was more automobile bodies built in Amesbury, Massachusetts, up to 2015, than any other place on earth. And they had 37 different carriage builders there and two sleigh makers, all horse-drawn. And once the automobiles started being built, they switched their trades to building automobile bodies, and they'd ship them on train. And Billy Durant, that originally came from Boston, that uh, took over Buick and then uh, built GM, he, he used to buy bodies for Buick, and he had them shipped by rail. And in 2000, I mean, 2000, 1915, mm-hmm. he had a special Buick model called the Amesbury model to pay tribute to the fine workmanship that the body builders in Amesbury did. Yeah, and that and that area up there was was uh, was sort of known for kind of a little bit of. Uh, I think uh, there was a uh, company up there that that provide a lot of. Um, Interior materials, uh, something Bonnie, uh, that, yes, that, yes. yeah, that yeah, that did you know up in that area, and you would think Amesbury of all places, you wouldn't think that. I, I guess as almost the same idea as the idea of Rolls Royce building bodies in Springfield, right? Um, I don't think they actually built the bodies here, but they did assemble the cars. Assemble the cars, yeah, okay. Yes, and and they had Brewster down in Long Island City, New York, actually do the bodies for them. Hmm. Yeah. So just when so just when you think it is in fact uh, something something that you know oh they they must all be made in England or something. In fact, that's not the case at all. Well, what happened is they were they were making them, and they were only allowed to sell them in America. They were not allowed to sell them anyplace else. And the Springfield Rolls Royce sold a couple down to Argentina, and the Argentina dignitaries, when they had problems with it, they notified England that the cars that they bought from Rolls Royce uh, they had a problem, and Rolls Royce over in England did not like that. Uh, it leaked out, and they took the the uh, franchise away so they couldn't build them no more hmm and you know and i'm kind of bouncing around here and i apologize for that but it's i just okay. got i just got an email from somebody who says that um they're in the early stages of establishing an event to honor the legacy of gm's framingham automotive production uh they want to chronicle uh kind of the metro west birth and growth of the automotive industry and they're hoping to get a 1924 base state sedan completed in the next year or so so it'll be drivable for 2024 for its 100th birthday um i didn't even know there was a base state sedan I haven't heard that one either, but I do have yeah. a, I do have three books on the complete history of Chevrolet Company. Louis Chevrolet started it in 1913 with Billy Durant, 
And Billy Durant wanted Chevrolet to, they built a big, beautiful car in 1913, but they weren't selling. And he also had Mr. Little that was a, uh, one of his friends build a car called the Little Car. And he combined those two cars together. Louis Chevrolet didn't want his Chevrolet name on a little car, on, on a smaller car, and he quit, and he walked away. Mm. And I can actually send you that complete history on that. I've written a chapter on, on uh, Billy Durant and, I mean, uh, Louis Chevrolet. Yeah. And uh, that was... Uh, that's the car that brought Billy Durant back into General Motors and made him the top boss again until he got thrown out again uh, five or six years later. Well, that's that's an interesting point. You talk about how people came in and out of the automotive industry, and a lot of the early automotive industry eventually all went bankrupt, right? Well, 2000, I mean, I always say 2000, yep. I mean 19. 1908 had problems. After World War One ended in 1919, they had a recession in 1920 and 1921 that put a lot of companies out of business. And then 1929, uh, the Black Friday, uh, most of the big, beautiful cars that were being built just didn't last. The Marmon, the Duesenberg, the Cord, the McFarlane. Uh, Packard was lucky to, to have carried through and... Uh, you know the depression really did a number. Yeah, it really, it really did. And I know what little I know about early automotive history. You look at a lot of these car brands, and and you know as they merged together with other companies, they had to because they just for one reason or another weren't profitable. They weren't able to put it all together to make it work because building a car is a very complex. Uh, even even in the simple days, was a very complex procedure that required a lot of resources, and a lot of these uh, early manufacturers just didn't have the resources to be able to do it. Right? You're absolutely right. But many of the smaller ones bought the parts, so they really weren't like Ford Motor Company. In fact, a lot of people think that Henry Ford built the very first car. His his first successful car was in 1903. And the Dodge brothers, Horace and John Dodge, actually built it for the Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. But he started in 1899 with two investors, and he built a race car. And they thought that he should have been building cars so they could get a return on their money, so they, they cut the financing. And he ended up, by 1901, he ended up uh, building that race car, and he built it beat Alexander Winton, which was the fastest uh, race car driver in America at the time. So they got 47 other investors together and they started the Detroit Automobile Company, which was actually the Ford Motor Company. And what what Henry Ford did is he knew that if he took and started building cars without getting the patents first, that there was people that would take and strip it, uh, reverse engineer down the last nut and bolt and run to the run to the uh, patent office, get patents, and then Ford Motor Company would be paying all those royalties to somebody else when he invented it. So Ford was really kind of brilliant in in the beginning, and he ended up um, walking out of the Detroit Motor Car Company, and they had to change the name from Ford, and he built this very first car, and that car turned out to be the Cadillac, the 1902 Cadillac. And they hired Henry Leland from your neck of the woods. He worked for Brown and Schaub moved to Detroit, 
Michigan, started a machine shop called Falcona Leland, and he was hired by Oldsmobile, ran some Olds to build engines and transmissions. And when the um, when the the investors at the Detroit company that was building the Fords, uh, when he wasn't building the cars. They're going to hire Henry Leland to come in and run the warehouse to get them built, and Ford wouldn't hear of it, and so he walked out. So they eventually hired Henry Leland to run Cadillac, and that very first Cadillac was built by Ford. And if you look at the 1903 Ford and the 1902 Cadillac, they look exactly the same. That's because the same man designed them both. Well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you a couple little things that I got to do in my life so far is I got to drive a reproduction of the very first Daimler car, that little three-wheel car that you see uh, as one of the first vehicles. And I also got to drive a reproduction of that Ford race car, which... You're a lucky yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which was uh, probably one of the most fun and scary things I ever did in my life. And I think I only got it up to about 40 miles an hour or so. And, and I can't imagine what it was like with a, uh, a driver and a throttle man. It was, it was sort of like... Uh, it was sort of like how uh, offshore race boats run with, you know, somebody steers and somebody runs the throttle. And I guess that's how that's how the race car ran at the same time, which uh, was kind of fascinating in its own weird way. But but, yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot. And I, I don't know, was it Henry Ford that when somebody asked him, you know, what people were looking for in early cars who said, uh, you know, people were just looking for basically faster horses? Uh, you know, he grew up on a farm and he hated milking cows, yeah, and he didn't really like taking care of horses, so he wanted to replace the horse, and then he says, yes, now it's time to take and replace the cows, and he started soybean production and getting the milk from soybean. He used to supply the Ford company with soy milk for hmm. all the workers to drink free of charge, and uh, no, he was a character, but yeah. But when Ford raced against Winton, he had a, a, um, a mechanic riding with him. Right. And they, it was on an oval track. And if you watch the History Channel, it showed that they raced through the countryside. They did not race through the countryside. They raced on an oval track. Right. And, and a lot of the tracks back then were wood planks. And, and that mechanic, the two things that he had to do, number one, was pour oil in because it was gravity-fed. They didn't have oil pumps in the first cars. And the second thing he had to do was when they were driving around the corner, he had to get out on that running board and hang as low to the ground as he could so the car could go faster around the corner and it wouldn't tip over. Yeah, yeah, I remember I remember uh seeing some of that and it it was pretty amazing to see. And and you chronicled cars, uh, you know, you you said how how late do you go? Uh, 1948, but uh, yeah. I'm actually, um, where I was coming on the show, I did a quick crash course on Toyota and Honda, uh, and I was very surprised with what I found out on, on just the research this morning. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of interesting that, you know, a lot of the early Toyota dealers and early Honda dealers were basically gas station owners because the, the you know, people that sold Buicks and Pontiacs and Fords didn't want anything to do with them. And, you know, people that had a pretty successful gas station started started buying, started 
getting a little franchise with the Toyotas and Hondas. And some of those some of those cars were uh, weirdly interesting in their own way. In fact, one of the weirdly interesting things you sent me a you sent me an article today about uh, what could be considered in some cases the first minivan although it's not so mini which was the uh, 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 yeah this yeah the stout scarab which yeah. was uh, one of those early aerodynamic sort of cars and you know i think uh what was it in haggerty's uh publication called it the coolest minivan ever but yeah i yeah. agree <laughs> yeah if you want to see one the best place to go is to hickory corners in uh, Michigan, they have they have the museum there, and they have one in the barn. Um, it's a fabulous museum. While you're out there, you can go through Auburn, Indiana, to the Auburn Court Duesenberg Museum. Then you can go a little bit further north through Dearborn to the Henry Ford Museum. Lansing has a, the Olds Museum. Um, South Bend has the Studebaker Museum. Uh, it's unbelievable the museums. In America, and there's a guy named Sean Matthews from Georgia that actually prints emails and he sends them out every week highlighting different museums across America. So I would encourage people to support these museums because if they don't get the support, they end up going out of business, and when they auction them off, many of them go out of the country overseas. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and you don't even have to go to. Detroit. I mean, right, right here in New England, we have we have some uh, we have some pretty neat places. We have we have the Lars Anderson Auto Museum in Brookline. We have the Audrain Museum, which I've never been to down in Newport. We have the Newport Car Museum, which is typically newer cars, but still, if you love absolutely pristine, beautiful cars, uh, yeah. the Newport Car Museum is is certainly worth going to. The Round Shaker Barn down at um, the Heritage. Uh, Museum, yeah, has Sandwich. some beautiful, yeah, beautiful cars down there, and uh, uh, Owl's Head ha- is interesting. I kind of miss uh, uh, a f- friend of mine, Glenn Gould. His father owned uh, the um, museum up in Wells, Maine, the Wells Auto Museum, and yes. since then, since then, that's been sort of. I don't think it's open anymore. I know they sold some of the cars that were in there after uh, Glenn Senior passed away, and there was some family issue that went in on with all of that too but there there is some and even down in uh, i think it's down in maybe Pawtucket or somewhere there's a little auto racing museum there there's a lot of little fascinating pieces of automotive history you can find kind of all around new england the the um the stanley steamer museum up in maine kingfield maine yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot of a lot of places if you know if you like to look at history as well as read about it there's a lot of places you can really look at some of this history Yes, you're right. There's one museum that I did want to point out that I have uh, backed uh, for at least 10, 12 years now. It's called Seal Cove Museum. It's up on the uh, island that Bahabas on, but it's on the south side. And it's a complete educational-type museum with some of the earliest brass-age vehicles. It was one of the first articles that I wrote that I took pictures. And the museum uh, said that you can take many pictures as you want, but you can't use them, uh, you know, for commercial yeah. use. And I wrote the article for the Veterans, uh, the, the Vintage Motor Car Club of America. They, they print a magazine every two months called The Bulb Horn. 
and I submitted it, and they, they printed it. And a week later, I got an email. Once it was published, I got an email from the Seal Cove Museum, and I said to my wife, maybe I shouldn't open it because I broke the law. They might be pushing it because yeah. I took pictures and publicized it, even though I'm not getting paid for yeah. any of this. Um, no, they loved the article. They said that uh, that it was one of the highlights of their marketing was to have that printed. And since then, I have done uh, over 150 different articles printed in different magazines and, and um, electronic uh, mailings touring uh, car magazines. Mm. And, and it, it educates the public, but uh, it's a dying sport. The old the old cars. If you go to the auctions, the auctioneers don't even want to waste time auctioning like a, a Model T or a Model A Ford. There's not enough money in a farm. They would rather do a you know a Mercedes or a Porsche or something like that, and and they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars commission. So it, it, we're, we're moving out of the antique auto stage into the ultra-modern. And the kids growing up today, you know, generation after generation, if they're not introduced to the old cars, they're, they're going to be gone. Yeah, I mean, that was always um, the the person who used to own uh, Hemmings Motor News, uh, Terry Eric. He always felt that, you know, you should always try to bring your kids to a car show sort of thing because he, he really did feel that it was important that that people get to, you know, really look at and see what see what there really is to see about some of these cars that are that were part of history. I know I just stumbled across um, a car that I had never heard of before from Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. It was called the National. It was a national. It was oh, built yeah. by the National Motor Car and Vehicle Corporation. And I saw it at a local car show, and I had never seen one before. And it was a pretty fascinating car. The National was one of the Indy, Indy uh, 500 uh, sponsors in the first 1909 150 mile race. Uh, they had the Stutz. They had the Marmon, the uh, Duesenberg was after 1922. Uh, a lot of great cars. In, in Indianapolis was actually the car capital before Detroit. Mm. And, and be- before Indianapolis, Cleveland was. So it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, I've actually written a chapter just listing all the car companies in St. Louis. That, mm. But they weren't big enough to deserve their own chapter. Yeah. But they all deserve to be written about and explained. Now, Harry Stutz, um, what I write, I, I, I want to tell this one little story if I could. Well, Harry, uh, why, don't, why, don't you, why don't you put that story on hold for just a minute, and okay. why don't we take why don't we take a break, and we'll, we got we got some bills to pay. So okay. why don't we take a quick break? Why don't you stay on hold? This is a this is a fascinating old car conversation. If you don't mind, we'd like to keep you on for another ten minutes or so. You got me all day if you want. <laughs> well, I, well, they don't let me stay on all day. So okay. why don't we do that? You're listening okay. to the Car Doctor program on 95.9 WATD. We're, we're talking with David Sutherland. He is a old car historian, author, and uh, pretty knowledgeable guy here. We're talking about everything from old cars from late 1800s to mid-1900s and a lot of the history. And, th- and those are all the cars I really don't know a whole lot about. So stay tuned for stay tuned for a little bit more old car talk. You're listening to the Car, talk, car Doctor program on 95.9 WATD. We'll be right back. No one wants cold. to be left with AAA. You won't be. 
Their experienced technicians will be there fast to help with your dead battery, unexpected breakdown, frozen locks, or any car issue that comes with winter weather. They're trained to fix most problems on the spot, often without the need for a tow. And you're covered in any car you're driving or riding in, 24-7. Join AAA today at aaa.com slash join. You make it big in motorsports, but the real reward for most is the thrill of the adrenaline and the chance to hold the checkered flag. I'm Miles Heger. The excitement and danger of motor racing are the reasons drivers love to race and why fans show up. Join me and my guests each week as we discuss the local short tracks while also sharing opinions and insight on NASCAR's national series. Tune in to Miles on Motorsports Tuesday nights at 7 here on 95.9 WATD. Make an appointment Sunday morning at 11 for John Paul, the car doctor, on 95.9 WATD. Now, back to the car doctor. And welcome back to the Car Doctor Program. We're talking with David Sutherland. He is a automotive historian and researcher, and uh, he, he, he he's taken us through a lot of really interesting history in some of these old cars that we're seeing around. David, welcome back to the Car Doctor Program. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, you know, you, you started you started to uh, get us up to date uh, a little bit. Uh, where were you going with that? Okay, Harry Stutz, uh, this is a type of writing that I research and write that I think a lot of people, especially women, love this. Uh, Harry Stutz's father immigrated from what would be possibly Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia area, to Ellis Island. And when he was in line waiting, the gentleman or the couple in front turned to Harry's father and says to him, uh, We're, who's sponsoring you? And he said, my uncle out in Indiana. And he says, oh, very good. And the young woman behind Harry's father says, what do you mean sponsor? And they said, told her that if you don't have a sponsor and you're immigrating into the country, they're going to put you back on the boat and refuse your, you to come. Mm. And she said she had no sponsor. And she was basically the same age as Harry's father. So they solved the problem. The two of them got married in line, and they lived happily ever after, right until death do him apart. But Harry was born, and Harry Stutz was considered one of the greatest engineers of the first decade in the 1900s. And I guess if and, and if my memory serves, there was a, a beautiful Stutz car down at the uh, down at Heritage Gardens in the Round Barn. Uh, there. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, no collection is complete without a Stutz. Without a Duesenberg, without a McFarlane, but not too many people have McFarlanes. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think, and I don't, I don't even know if the casino's still there, but there was a casino out in Las Vegas that had the largest private collection of Duesenbergs in the world, I think. Yes, that was Harris' collection, and yeah. that, that was busted up when Mr. Harris died. Uh, I probably will do a, uh, a chapter on him because he contributed a lot to saving antique automobiles, but people that go to the to Vegas now, they have a museum called the Quad Museum because it's on the fourth floor, and they have a lot of the historic automobiles, movie star cars like Elizabeth Taylor's, uh, you know, Cadillac and whatnot. And I visited there, and it, it's fabulous. Uh, the cars that they have for sale, and believe it or not, the prices are pretty reasonable. Yeah, there there is some there is some pretty fascinating 
cars kind of around the country, and I think people are always fascinated with celebrity-owned cars, whether it's whether it's you know uh, I don't know whether it's somebody who owned a, a Stutz Blackhawk, which was I think kind of a Buick of sorts, one kind or another, or or whether it, it's uh, so that was sort of a modern neoclassic sort of car. But there was a lot of interesting cars that celebrities owned, and I think uh, I've never been to Graceland, but I guess there's a lot of the uh, Graceland uh, Elvis's Cadillac down there that people can people can look at and see. And I just read recently that one of Elvis's planes sold for like two point three million dollars, and it was. Uh, you know, it had no engines and electronics in it, and it probably doesn't have any chance of ever flying again. But uh, it's amazing the amount of uh, some of these prices go for some of these kind of kind of pieces of history, and that's what that's what cars are. They're pieces of history. You can you you know whether it's the cars that were in the you know fifties and sixties that had that you know kind of rocket ship look, or whether it was cars that were in the early nineteen hundreds that were glorified. Um, you know, wagons. Uh-huh. Well, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you got car makers all over this country. Now, you brought it up. The young men would take and maybe read Scientific Journal saying uh, how men are building cars, so they would stop building the cars mm. in their backyard. I wanted to point out in Boston alone, that's including Charleston, Brighton, Alston, Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, Roslindale, Dorchester, Mattapan, Hyde Park, and South Boston and East Boston, there was it's listed as 178 different men or companies that started building automobiles between 1880 and 1920. And that was mixed with electric, steam, and internal combustion gas. So there are so many different cars out there, you know, from the early years. If you, like Pawtucket, Rhode Island, you had the um, the train maker down there that made engines, mm-hmm. and they built, built automobiles too. Uh, Rhode Island had probably as many automobile builders in the first 20 years as Indianapolis and a lot more than Detroit. The first car built in Detroit was Charles King, one year, one three months before Henry Ford built his quadricycle. Hmm. But but a lot of people don't realize Detroit was called the car city in the 1880s and hmm. 1890s. The reason why, because the railroads were expanding all across the country. The hardwood forests were all chopped down from New England all the way down the coast used for farming. And the last forests were in Michigan, and that's where they started building the railroad cars because the railroads were expanding all over the country, and they had to build railroad cars to carry the freight. And that's where they were built. Now, Charles King invented the pneumatic tools, the air gun, and the rivet gun powered by air. He built the very first car in Michigan. Hmm. And uh, Ransom Olds was in Lansing. He built a steam car, but not an internal combustion engine before. And he actually, at, at 13, 14 years old, he built this steam engine. He attached it to a boat, and he used to take people up the Lansing River on Friday and Saturday nights as a romantic cruise to make money. Hmm. I, I, and our earliest pioneers were so talented in 
discovering stuff. And what I do is I actually go to the county that these car companies are located, and I go through their their county history. I go to the, if they have a county museum, I go to their county museum, and I I talk to the to the curators. I try to pump them for all the information I mm-hmm. can. Uh, one one of the most important automobile pioneers. Some people think were the Duryeas in Springfield, Mass. They mm-hmm. weren't. I would say that that um, Elwood Haynes, out in Kokomo, Indiana, was maybe one of the most important pioneers we had. He built the had the Pioneer One built by the by uh, uh, brothers Apperson brothers. They had Jonathan Maxwell working for him, and Maxwell ended up going to Oldsmobile and built the Apperson. I mean, the uh, Maxwell car that ended yep. up be- becoming Chrysler. The Apperson brothers separated from from Haynes and built their car, the Apperson, the Jackrabbit. And incidentally, uh, the Apperson brothers, uh, the youngest one, went hunting with his father, and he shot a rabbit the very first time at five, six years old. And the father started yelling at him, and he couldn't understand why. And the father told him, if you're going to shoot a rabbit, you got to shoot him between the eyes, because now we can't eat it. It's filled with lead. Their grandfather was Daniel Boone on the maternal side. Now, Elwood Haynes worked in the gas industry. He invented stainless steel, sold it to U.S. stainless steel. He invented stellite that became Union Carbide, and they used stellite in in the NASA uh, building of our mm. spaceships and everything. And this, this guy dates back to the 1800s. He went to Worcester Polytech Institute, and he learned metallurgy. Mm. And this is all. These are, uh, are pioneers that fit in with that Eli Whitney and Thomas Blanchard and Samuel uh, Slater. The evolution of our country by you know building and innovating, making things better, stronger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it it is really it is really fascinating. And for people that also want a little bit of a. Uh, a little bit of a, a, a touch for history, you know. Go go out to uh, the what is it, the Longfellow Inn out in Sudbury that was originally that was going to be like Greenfield Village. That was going to be uh, You're right. Ford, Ford, Ford. Ford was going to be out there. Yeah, uh, that's the, um, the Wayside Inn is Wayside Street. Inn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, the gristmill Henry Ford restored. Right. That's that's exactly where yeah. he wanted to build there. But uh, you brought up uh, going out west. Springfield has the Quad Museums, and one of them is on transportation, and they have every Indian motorcycle ever built, one, at least one for every mm. year. They have the Rolls-Royce uh, Phantom Two that was built there. They have other cars in that museum, the Transportation mm. Museum. That's another great spot. Yeah. No, there's a lot of great places to learn about automotive history and it sounds like a good start would be uh learning learning from uh the books that you've written and again uh if people want to find out more information about your books where where can they find them well i haven't written any books i've written okay. articles have been articles printed. for okay yes uh, interestingly i'm on facebook and anybody that wants to to become a friend of Facebook, you're going to see more pictures of every single car built around the world. Mm. I mean, I, mean I, I, I scroll back and I look at them and I say, I, I, don't even, I can't even imagine all these cars. Um, my name is David, but the middle name is A-L-L-E-N 
Settland, S-E-T-T-E-R-L-A-N-D. They can go on Facebook and they can send me a friend request. And, and if, they're, if they're into automobiles, automatically yep. I accept them. And they can uh, every single day. And not only that, I keep it so that anybody can take anything out of my Facebook by hitting the share button, and they can put it on their own. Oh, good. They could, bu- they could build their own museum of automobiles on their Facebook page. Yeah. So have you, have you before we go, have you gone to the Ford Heritage Vault? Uh, no, I have not. No. You, sh- you, should, you should check that out. They have, I think there's 5,000 curated photogra- photographs and uh-huh. product brochures, everything from, you know, you, you read the uh, sort of owner's manual of owning a Model T, and you wonder how anyone ever actually drove one. Well, it might surprise you, but I have over 4,000 books in my library, and at least 300, maybe 500 of them are all automotive-related. Yeah. Yep. And on Henry Ford alone, I have probably 15 to 20 different books. Um, I, I could spend 12 hours talking strictly on Henry Ford. But one thing I wanted to point out to you, Mr. John, the car expert or doctor, is Toyota got their start in 1936 assembling cars for General Motors. And once they learned the trade, then they started to take and build their own. And it's interesting, uh, Toyota might not have survived if it wasn't for for Bob Lutz, the engineer Mm -hmm. that worked for Chrysler, and he designed a neon, and the neon was a small, uh, you know, very good car, but it was very inexpensive. And what Toyota did, they did the same thing uh, later with a, for the Lexus. They took the neon and they stripped it down to every glass nut and bolt. They had all the mechanics in looking at it, studying in it. And they said that the neon saved so much money by making, maybe they have something that the, the, the Toyota would have seven or eight parts in. Mm-hmm. Well, Chrysler decided to make this with only three parts, so it was much cheaper to make that part. Instead of using five bolts to attach this, they only used three bolts. So Toyota got this idea, and that's what gave Toyota the initiative to take and stop building a, you know, a fairly decent car. Yeah. And well, it, it well, the, rate. well the, 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 and I don't know how true it is, and I kind of half heard it from an authority who said that Bob Lutz fired an engineer at Chrysler once because they had a sign-up in their office that said, uh, we can build it good, cheap, or fast, pick two out of three. Well, it could be true. <laughs> it could be true. It hey, could David, be true. David, thanks thanks again for joining us on the Car Doctor radio program. Maybe we can have you on again sometime. Maybe we can, maybe we can focus on one brand, one brand of car. We can maybe focus on just Chevys or... Or Buick, you know, who John, knows? That, that would be great if I knew if I just knew a, a little bit in advance, so yep, I could have all yep. my material. Yeah, but absolutely. Also, I, I think it would be interesting if uh, if any callers wanted to call and ask about a certain make yep. of a car about the Pioneer. Yeah, um, you know. Yeah, no, and uh, and you know, I we kind of discovered each other because you were you were speaking at at a. a, a uh, senior, uh, uh, what was it? Council on Aging or something? Uh, and are you? Do you have any public speaking engagements coming up? Um, yeah, I have April fifteenth at the Industrial Museum in Attleboro. 
Oh, okay. And that's a great little place, by the way. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. And I'm going to be highlighting Frank Mossberg, which built electric cars in in Attleboro. He built automobiles. He built the, the wrenches for the Model T Fords for Henry Ford. Ford wouldn't allow him to put Mossberg name on the wrenches. So he had to put Ford, but what he did is he used a diamond and he put an M in the middle for his trademark, so everybody knows it's a Mossberg wrench. Oh, there you yeah, he made there over two hundred and fifty thousand bicycle bells in the eighteen eighties that you attach your handlebar and it rings ding a ling. Uh, yeah, anyways, no, he, amazing stuff. Hey, David, we got to get going. We got we got more no show problem. to do here. But thanks for joining us, and have a great rest of your weekend. Okay, thank you very much. All right, for having all right. Take, me. Okay. take care, David. Bye bye. Yep, Why don't we take another quick break? My name's John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. We talked a lot about automotive history today. I want to thank David Sutherland for joining us and uh, check out his Facebook page. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Kia Palisade. Uh, I mean, Hyundai Palisade. What am I saying? Hyundai Palisade, when we come back. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. You'll listen to the Car Doctor Program on 95.9 WATD. We'll be right back. No one wants to be left out in the cold. With AAA, you won't be. Their experienced technicians will be there fast to help with your dead battery, unexpected breakdown, frozen locks, or any car issue that comes with winter weather. They're trained to fix most problems on the spot, often without the need for a tow. And you're covered in any car you're driving or riding in, 24-7. Join AAA today at aaa.com join. South Shore Hockey fans, please join us every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. for the Ted Donato Show, Ted Talks Hockey, on 95.9 WATD, sponsored by the Caskin Flagon. Make an appointment Sunday morning at 11 for John Paul, the Car Doctor, on 95.9 WATD. Now, back to the Car Doctor. And welcome back to the Car Doctor program. There was an amazing amount of uh, information there. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, and I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, when it comes to cars from, you know, the 1800s up to the 1940s or so, I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge in that area. And when you talk to somebody like David who has that knowledge and does that research, uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, it, it is uh, some of these cars that were... You know, in some cases, barely car companies. You know, they they were really just people that started building cars in their you know garages and horse barns and things like that, which which makes it pretty interesting. One company who, uh, you know, maybe they did actually start building cars and horse barns was you know Hyundai. And I remember I worked, you know, I as part of my job at AAA, I worked as a third party vehicle arbitrator. So in other words, if someone had a, a problem with the certain vehicles, Toyota, Hyundai, Subaru, Porsche, Lexus, I guess, were the and Ford were the companies that I worked. I don't want to say worked for because I didn't work for those companies at all. I worked for a third party that did arbitration for those particular cars. And I remember when the first Hyundai came out, which was almost not really a Hyundai. It was more of a Mitsubishi than a Hyundai. It had, uh, it had, a, it was mostly Mitsubishi parts branded as a Hyundai. Hyundai was originally a textile company uh, that has since, you know, gone from 
textiles to building tankers to computer hardware to all kinds of stuff but they also build vehicles and the first vehicles frankly weren't that good but that has changed a lot the 2023 hyundai palisade is classified as a mid-size suv um the calligraphy is one snazzy mid-size suv it's a legitimate luxury mid-size suv alternative the palisade comes in five trim levels either front wheel or all-wheel drive all models use the same 3.8 liter v6 engine that produces more uh, more than adequate 291 horsepower depending on the trim levels um the uh you get everything from leather interior to um to, and, and really fancy leather interior too. Uh, it really is. It's uh, the interior is a great place to spend some time. The seats are comfortable, offer plenty of head and leg room, uh, have enough adjustments to accommodate. I think just about any size driver. What's also nice to see the passenger seat is also power adjustable for height as well as leg room. Somebody wrote to me the other day and they said their wife was fairly short, and every midsize SUV they got into the passenger seat was a manual adjusting seat and in at least in the calligraphy the the uh, calligraphy version of this uh, it is a power adjustable seat which is kind of nice the controls are also nicely laid out the shifter is a push button type arrangement although not my favorite but seemed more refined than the last Hyundai I drove the info system is certainly one of the best with actual knobs and buttons to control some of the major functions minimizing driver distraction the SE and SEL you know, have, uh, you know, they're just, they're, they can seat eight passengers. Well, our tester, um, the calligraphy model had, uh, like four captain's chairs. Um, I think they both work out, work out well, depending on what you need. Technology bounds with wireless charging, Bluetooth connectivity for Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, even a wireless hotspot. There's plenty of 12-volt PowerPoint connections. On the road, the 3.8-liter V6 engine delivers balanced performance. The 295-horsepower engine is certainly more than adequate, and it still gets pretty good fuel economy. No one will confuse the Palisade with a sports sedan, but certainly more than enough power to get up to highway speeds with ease. EPA says 19 city, 25 miles per gallon. I average about 21 miles per gallon, most Mostly city driving. The ride's comfortable and certainly more designed for a family road trip than a twisty two-lane highway. Overall, the Palisades is just a pleasure to drive. This is one of the most popular midsize SUVs right now, and it's easy to understand why. Full complement of um, advanced driver assistance systems like collision avoidance assist and navigation-based cruise control, remote start. Um, you know, again, it's a it's a smart technology vehicle without any doubt about that um i mean it's just it's a it's a good car it does have one interesting feature though it has it has uh remote parking assist which you push the start button to start the car you hit the button and it will back up or go forward so in other words if you parked in a parking space and someone parked like six inches away from your driver's door you can actually hit the start button you can back the car out of the parking space Seems a little bit more of a novelty than something you'd really use. I, I did it the other day somewhere, and it was at night, and the lights came on, and the car moved, and somebody came out. They got all panicky. They're like, yeah, there's no one driving that car. And I said, well, there is sort of. But uh, but anyway, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, if you want to see pictures of the Hyundai Palisade, go to my Car Doctor Instagram page, which is John F. Paul on Instagram. And I think we have a caller on the line from from. Let's see. What's 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 Jesse say? Jesse says uh, we have Tammy from Duxbury online. Tammy, good morning and welcome to the Car Doctor program. Yes, 
Hi, good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. I was just uh, tuning in, and I was just wondering um, if I know back in the, about two or three years ago when the pandemic hit, there was a shortage of used cars. Um, so I was just wondering, as of today forward, um, if there are any used cars available, um, you know, for sale at all, just only used cars I'm looking yeah, no, the, we are starting to see more used cars because we're starting to see more new cars. And that's where the used cars come from is, you know, people people are, you know, going out to buy new. So, and that was sort of the problem. The problem was, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone thought that no one was going to buy anything. But in fact, that was just the opposite. A lot of people started buying cars and a lot of people that maybe only had one car in the family because they lived in the city, all of a sudden, you know, moved to their country house or whatever the case was decided to you know their kids needed a car so it really shortened up and tightened up that used car market we are starting to see more used cars come to market now and we've also started to see which is kind of a good thing we've started to see used car prices come down a bit not a lot in the last couple of weeks um I, I've had people on from both IC Cars and Car Gurus, and they both talked about how we've seen about an 11% reduction in used car prices. So inventory's gone up a little bit, used car prices have come down a little bit. So that's a good thing if you're out car shopping. And I think if you look around, and even at new car dealers as well, you'll start to see a little bit more inventory than there was, say, 12 or 16 months ago. Okay. Okay. No. All right. Thanks, Sammy. Okay. Bye bye now. Take care. Have a good day. All right. Take bye. care. Thank you. Bye bye. And going back to the phones, let's talk to Bill from Medford. Bill, good morning. Good morning, John Paul. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah. Very good. Quick, quickly, John, this is about a 2016 Ford Escape that my daughter in law purchased new. It has about 75,000 miles on it. In the last year, it's been throwing a code for the EVAP system. Mm-hmm. The, techni- the technicians have been able to get the code out, and it passes inspection fine. And I think they've already replaced something called it a purge valve, or yep, yep, to throw some code a P one four five zero or something. But the thing I was calling for, John, she says of late there's this lag between her giving the car gas and the engine responding, and I was wondering if anything in that fuel system might be doing that related to that EVAP no, system? No, the, unless all of a sudden the EVAP system went the other way and it's actually causing the engine to run a little bit too rich, but that's not usually uh-huh. the case. When the EVAP code comes up, it usually means the system's leaking, so like that purge okay. valve or whatever the case is. So right. at this kind of mileage, you know, you could be starting to see some carbon buildup in the valves. You could, you could be starting to see some... Um, you know, maybe some kind of tune-up related things starting to start up a okay. little bit along the way. Um, the other thing is this has not been, depending on which engine's in this, this has not been the most dependable of Ford vehicles ever built. And uh, so right now, right now, I'd kind of keep an eye on it. Um, if it's if it's due for some sort of maintenance at this point, I guess I'd, you know, consider getting some maintenance done to it. Um, okay. Be, because it, you know, at this sort of, you know, time frame, I guess. You said it had how many miles on it? About 76,000, 75,000, yeah. something right around Yeah, there. so, you know, at you know at that kind of mileage, you know, things like, 
you know, things like spark plugs don't need to be replaced. But on the other hand, you know, I think I think spark plugs in that vehicle are around 100,000 miles. So mm-hmm. um, even though it sounds like it's a little bit early, maybe the spark plugs will give you a clue of okay. where it's running. So it at seven years old now, which I get, you know, 2016 sounds like a brand new car to me, but it's seven years old. Yeah. You know, may, <laughs> you know, may, maybe it's maybe it's time to think about a, a little bit more, a little bit more maintenance to the car and see right. how see how things are going as far as that goes. Um, and and one of the real common ones, and we're just about out of time, but one of the real common ones is we are starting to see a fair amount of carbon buildup in some cars today. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe try some Lucas fuel injector cleaner or Tecron or something like that oh, okay. for a couple for a t- couple of tanks of fuel and see if that maybe helps clean clean the engine up a little bit and see if that hesitation between gears starts to go away. And is okay. is it, and now does it really feel like it's in between as it's shifting? No, my daughter-in-law says it's as she's driving and as, as it well maybe it is because yeah. when they're accelerating from a light, it seems to not go. Okay. Then, yeah, yeah. I would I would start with a good fuel injector clean. Try that, and then kind of go from there and see see how it is after that. Okay. Hey, we got to get right, going. That mu- that music means we are out of time. I want to thank our yeah. I want to thank our guest David Sutherland for joining us on the program today. I want to thank our callers for joining us, and of course, I want to thank Jesse for pull it, holding it all together at the studio today. Until next week, make sure you wear your seatbelt, drive safely, be good to your car, and if you see an emergency vehicle by the side of the road, slow down or move over. It saves lives. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. W-A-T-T.